Did beings from another world visit Earth? We'll need to disguise ourselves. What is it? I believe you have that garment on backwards. The Star Trek story that rewrites history as you know it. I Love Lucy is on tonight. An all-new episode of Enterprise, next Wednesday at 8, 7 central on UPN. Strange new takes. I'm your host Nach Karnik, and stuck with me in a mine shaft are Rodikus Baker, Emily Bowen Marler, and Bill Voivod. Welcome to Strange New Takes. We're excited to continue uh, a series recapping episodes of Star Trek that deal with time travel. Uh, and today we're going to be recapping Carbon Creek from Star Trek Enterprise. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media. Um, that's at Strange New Takes on Facebook, Insta, and Twitter. Uh, we like hearing from y'all. Um, do tell us about uh, your thoughts in, in the podcast and, uh, you know, um, general stuff. Also, um, do not forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's how uh, people like you find us and um, uh, help join the conversation. So do not forget to rate us uh, five stars on Apple Podcasts. And while this show did premiere, um, this episode did premiere in this century, it is still 19 years old. So we are going to spoil it. If you haven't seen it, you might want to turn this off. Spoiler warning, this episode is not actually a time travel episode. <laughs> I, I, we, we can, we can, we can talk we can, about it. We, yeah, talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> well, but before we get into this episode, I just wanted to share with you all, you know, I was part of this time travel club and i'm really good friends with everybody who's in it and we go way back okay uh. <laughs> okay Uh-oh. anyway all right <laughs> this week we're discussing carbon creek the second don't forget of- those five star ratings guys <laughs> 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 uh, we're discussing Garbage Creek, the second episode of the second season of Star Trek Enterprise. First aired 25th September 2002. Teleplay by Chris Black. Story by Rick Berman, Brandon Braga, and Dan O'Shannon. It was directed by James Contner. And it occurs in 2152 and between 1957 and 1958. So we always start our discussions with our strange new takes. So crew... Let's let's jump into our strange new takes. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in first this time. Uh, I have a science related take this week, which is that uh, I did not know this, but China is launching a space station that is eventually going to be the size of the r- former Russian space station Mir. If y'all uh, remember that from the '90s, the first module of this space station was launched. Uh, I don't know actually. The module itself was launched this week. But the, the three people who are going to be in it were certainly launched this week. So it's going to be kind of neat. We're going to have two space stations uh, circling the Earth soon. And that's, that's, uh, that's pretty neat right there. But um, I feel like this episode is a prime example of how, of how Enterprise succeeds despite its best efforts. 
And uh, so I'm going to just lead with the fact that I like this episode overall. But like most of Enterprise, it has some moments where my hand is, my head is firmly in my hands. And I'm just shaking my head vigorously, wondering what the hell <laughs> were these people thinking writing stuff this way? Uh, and we'll get we'll get to what that stuff was. Uh, when we I wasn't flipping you off. I know our listeners can't see that I just flipped. <laughs> I was flipping the show off. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but we'll we'll get we'll get to what some of those things are that 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 drag Enterprise down sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so for my strange new take, my journal strange new take uh, this week, I'll um, follow on from where Notch, uh, well, for whatever Notch mentioned. Yeah, China's. Uh, Getting uh, out there, um, they've come a long way, uh, if you know what I mean, Notch. Um, <laughs> it's been a long road. I was uh, about to do it. Oh, you beat me to it. From there here. Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's been a long time. Oh gosh, I skipped the song. Time <laughs> They're launching a space station this week. Three guys in the sky. And they're not gonna... Okay, okay I'm gonna stop. All right, that, enough. enough. I'll, right. I'd give that five stars. Um, so, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, they, they, this is actually their time, I feel. So they've, they, they didn't have a manned space launch, I think, in the last five years. So three astronauts that went up. Um, quite... Um, on, on the older side, a couple of them, you know, 55 touching 60, and the youngest one is 45, first time in space. Um, but then they're also the only other country that successfully uh, dropped a, a rover on Mars, and countries have been trying for decades now. Uh, and, and, you know, they have one there that's moving around. So, yeah, and, and the space station's not supposed to be a lot around the International Space Station for too much longer, right? 2024 is, is the current really? date. And they have it uh, mechanically meant to extend till 2028, but there's not really a plan to replace it as far as I know. So, uh, yep, China's China's uh, getting there. Um, and with relation to this episode, um, I'll, I'll just I'll just say that it's unique for me. Whenever we've done episodes, I haven't been really watching the, the season or the series before, but Ironically, I was somewhere in, in season one, towards the end of season one, we started, when we talked about watching Carbon Creek, so I powered through a few episodes, and I watched it with the context of having the rest of season one in recent memory, and I, I will say, Notch, I agree with you, this episode, I mean, this, sorry, the, this episode is obviously very American, but the, the series, especially the season, does have a very, you're saying American spin to it, I, I think it does. Um, yeah, when we were when we were reviewing Broken Bow. Yes, yes. I mean, it, 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 the way they've set up certain characters and you know, uh, Ensign Meweather and their outlook. Uh, but yeah, we'll we'll get into that a little bit more later. Okay, my strange new take for life is um, when you are getting ready to cut fruit with a long sharp knife, it's a good idea to not drop it um, because then it can like land stabby side down in your foot. And then you have to go to the doctor and get x-rays and stitches. <laughs> so that's what I did on Friday. Ouch, ouch. Hope your tendons are okay. Yeah, well, and you know, so that's why I had to have x-rays because when I got there, the um, I went to the 
clinic on campus because my husband works at the university, so that's where our health insurance is through. And it was way faster to go there than urgent care. And the um, doctor who saw me was a former emergency room doctor. And he said, yeah, before we do anything else, um, I just thought you should know that a major artery runs through the point in your foot where you dropped that knife. So we need to check to make sure you didn't damage your artery. I was like, oh, gosh. (laughs) So we did the little checked strong pulse on one side of the wound, strong pulse on the other side. So we're good. I missed the tendons and I missed the artery. So, you know. I should make a full recovery. Um, But I'm sitting here with a ball under my foot so I can have my foot elevated (laughs) while we do this podcast. Good times. My strange new take for this episode, aside from what Notch said, because I was yelling at my television a few times. But if this episode is supposed to take place between October and January in Pennsylvania, there is a curious (laughs) lack of snow. (laughs) So yeah, unless because and especially this is this was before global warming, so there should have been snow on the ground in Pennsylvania in those months. So anyway, it's it's the unreliable narration. Yes, that's the right <laughs> right? So um, I had a strange new take, but I'm gonna table that for next time because uh, you guys started talking about space. So um, when the Soviet Union fell. There was one guy up on Mir, and there was supposed to be like a resupply mission, but his like government didn't exist anymore. So like, <laughs> can you imagine being that guy like <laughs> stranded on Mir, and then and then like the new Russian Federation eventually got the rack back together and you know sent a resupply mission. I, I don't think the delay was too bad in the end, but pretty scary. <laughs> Mir the... apparently smelled horrible. I'm sure. <laughs> like apparently it had like massive mold issues if I'm not if I remember correctly, and it just didn't smell great. Anyway, I believe the ISS is also kind of stinky, but. <laughs> um, so yeah, that you know I remember this episode, you know, from when it was when it was new, and so I think that says something, right? It made an impression on me, and I think it's kind of a, uh, I don't know, a nice cozy episode um and yeah i mean it's i think it suffers from some of the issues that that apply to enterprise generally um but you know i i'm I'm sure we'll talk about this more but i don't know if if they're really more and any worse in this episode than they are in the the series as a whole so i i i like it I'm i'm a fan of this one well, uh, let us jump into talking about it in a little bit more detail and figure out how we f- all feel. Um, the summary from Emory Alpha Tapal tells Archer and Tucker a story about her great-grandmother and two other Vulcans who crash-landed in a small Pennsylvania town in the year 1957. I kind of debated wh- where to dump in our typical conversation about the mechanics of time travel, and as Emily put it, this isn't technically a time travel episode at all. But I thought it, it would be nice to discuss, like, just jumping straight in here, because the whole conceit of this episode is Tapal telling a story. And I'd say, like, the mechanics of the time travel are, it's a mental time travel. We're going back through storytelling. And whenever there's storytelling involved, there are questions about the reliability of the narrator. And this has been explored in some detail in in stories like um, 
is it Ronin by Kurosawa? I forget the, the name where you see the same story from four different sides and then you realize that um, that uh, it, 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 each character has experienced the same thing differently. And then there's a famous, well, I don't know if it's famous actually, but there's a, there's a movie that I remember very well with Meg Ryan and Denzel Washington called Courage Under Fire, which also has the same kind of attitude. Um, so this is this this the, the reliability of the narrator, at least in in film, has been explored pretty pretty deeply. There's also many famous books and plays, and I wanted to ask your thoughts about that here, about whether that side of things worked for you, if you if it left you thinking, hey, about about the reliability of the narrator. Yeah, I I thought it was well done, um, you know, because they leave the door open. I mean, uh, Emily, you've already mentioned one issue that makes the whole thing not believable <laughs> and i think there are a few others but you know the way they structure the story it kind of allows for that and then you're left guessing at the end kind of was any of it true or was the whole thing true we don't really know so i, I thought that it was well done and fun mm -hmm. yeah well, it definitely reveals a more fun side of to paul than you normally get to see in enterprise so that was nice yeah, and I, and I think there wasn't anything when I when I watched it. I kind of knew about the episode. I may have watched it a long time ago. I didn't remember it clearly. When I was a few minutes in, I thought they would uh, keep cutting back to um, the conversation at the um, at the dinner table. But I I didn't I didn't really see that happen often enough. So um, it, it wasn't really a problem. I felt it it. It was immersive enough to be carried forward. The interesting thing for me was it was portrayed um, very equitably. Um, it it was not conveyed in the form um, of uh, Paul's foremother, right? I think that's what she called it, right? Um, being a little apprehensive of how uh, Mr. Al was um, trying to, you know, really observe and engage humanity. Uh, and initially she was uh, she was uh, apprehensive about it but the way the story opened up for us it was very very uh, non-biased i felt it was very third person i and for me i i don't know if we want to discuss this now or at the end about whether we think this actually took place maybe maybe it's best to leave it to the end but i do think that that it is elegantly placed where you can feel very strongly about either side of those that there isn't like conclusive evidence that it happened or didn't happen and uh, spoiler warning for the rest of enterprise they don't pick this up ever again so we don't actually find out one way or the other if this the story of tamir and mestral and strawn actually occurred so um i i like that part of it and again i i think we in some of our other time travel episodes we've discussed how the mechanics of time travel can sometimes get in the way. And this is a place where the, the mechanics are the narrator element, and it does get in the way, but that getting in the way is good. It is part of the, like, we are supposed to think about, like, hey, did this actually happen? Is this possible? Like, and so um, I, I feel like it's, it's kind of turning on its head the way we've talked sometimes about the mechanics of time travel in some of the other episodes. And, and Topol's called out, I think... Um earlier in season one, if I'm not mistaken, or in one of the episodes we've done, that Vulcans don't lie. So it's it's interesting that 
um, she does get caught in a situation, I think, where she is, you know, forced to tell a non-truth uh, to protect the crew or whatnot. But um, yeah, so that that part's interesting as well. It keeps you guessing. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's keep moving. I think it's important context to state that this that there have been tapal centric episodes in season one but i think this was in many ways jolene blalock's like first standout episode where they really i mean a lot of the extended cast of enterprise isn't even there jonathan archer and connor trainier are basically um well trip tucker not connor trainier are are relegated to kind of i mean i don't really like their role in this episode but they're related they're just like sounding boards and this is really Jolene Blalock and Tamir um, leading the show in this entire episode, which um, was fantastic. I think this is a very, like, I think looking back also, this is one of the, like, first real standout episodes of Enterprise. It's one of the highest rated non-two-putters in the whole series' run. So it has that. But I do think that this episode really does, as I was saying in my Strange New Take, succeed despite itself. There are some major structural issues that when you analyze deeply, come through. And I think, Emily, you put one of them in our in our Slack chat. Um, and so I'm going to let you let you lead with that in, in terms of the issues. Well, I mean, I was enraged by the changing behind the sheet scene. First of all, if I'm going to be changing behind a sheet... And I don't want the person and I'm doing it because I don't want the person to see me. I would be changing with my back to the sheet. I would not be changing to the side so that my nipples show through the sheet. I mean, it was freaking ridiculous. I was pretty you, pissed you, off. You probably <laughs> would not set up studio lighting. So you're right, exactly. So that my silhouette shows and it's like you might as well just have gotten naked right in front of him for all that sheet did for you. Um, but it just I was like, I hate the writers. I hate the directors. I hate everyone who was involved in making that scene happen. <laughs> it, I mean, just, just I, imagine, right? It's it's Mestral. And there's just uh, a giant erect penis. Like, yeah, that's, that's like that's like Austin Powers, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, yeah. And, and the part I was aghast about is she comes out. He tells her she wore the dress wrong. And she goes back. I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to do this all over again. But luckily, they cut it short but but they kind of did but yeah. i swear to god gene roddenberry came up from the grave and wrote that scene and told them to direct it that way I but anyway <laughs> I, these things i mean and it's funny i've i saw carbon creek, creek not that long ago and i'm like oh yeah i really like that episode and then i watched it this time and i was like what the fuck? but i will i will confess that i tend to get angrier about scenes like this when i've had a particularly angering experience with some nasty whatever man that same week so (laughs) there was there was an encounter that was relayed to me this week that i was like oh man suck and then i watched that episode and i'm like oh my gosh this is exact point all men don't really suck i'm so sorry um you know to my fellow co-hosts um but anyway yeah so i just thought that was gross and then also this is a second thing that happened but when um mestral was willing to uh, you know, give away uh, Tamir as though she was property that he had the right to hand over to a person since he didn't have money. But I do have this property here. This woman is something that I can clearly hand over to you with, since I don't have money because this woman and money are the same thing. So yeah, those were pretty gross. And I mean, it it is uh, 
there are many elements that I would say make it clear the the the, the kind of systemic sexism in the script. Mestral's kind of insubordination throughout this episode is kind of shown as this like laudable, amazing thing, and it's part of the structural part of the episode. And I think it has uncomfortable kind of overtones uh, because of that. Uh, you know, you you mentioned the kind of two uh, very obvious pieces of sexism right at the beginning. There's also the the whole thing of Archer and Trip kind of making fun of Tapal the whole time that they're chit-chatting. And it's just, there's a lot of stuff like the the, the kind of stuff about her age and all this. The, the, the way it just comes across to me just, this is like, ah, this is, this is, this is making me a little uncomfortable as, you, as I watch it. And I think there are just parts of it that make me just... I think it makes you just sit up and think about like, okay, there were people who like talk about TOS, like, you know, who watch TOS um, and said like, this is why I am a, a woman in science. That there are young girls who watched it and, 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 and joined. And then I just think about those people, like their corollaries watching Enterprise and seeing Tapal changing behind her bedsheet like that. And I mean, it just it just makes you sad. And for me, I really wish that there was kind of a director's cut of Enterprise where they were able to replace the decon scenes or at least the video of the decon scene with something else. Like, I, I genuinely think that this they should replace that scene with something else in this episode. Um, and it, it's just, it's kind of sad. I mean, another thing that's kind of sad to me is just the, the, the complete lack of any acknowledgement of racism. I mean, this happens in the mid-50s, and there are no black characters. To, like, to... what if Tuvok had been one of the Vulcans? That You know, I mean, obviously right. he lives in a different time, but I was just thinking it's pretty convenient that all of the Vulcans can pass as white, and so that doesn't, you know, right. they can fly under the radar. And so, so we're able to have this kind of, like, nostalgic look at 50s America without dealing with some of the inconvenient truths. Even the stuff about nuclear annihilation is we'll talk about in a little bit are I, I won't say they're whitewashed but they are dealt with with a little bit of a, a cleaner brush and it allows us to kind of have this very nice nostalgic kind of wavy look at the past but it is important when we're doing a podcast like this to acknowledge that there was a lot of racism back then and like you were saying Emily if Tuvok was around uh, they wouldn't have had the experience in the bar that they did when they first went in and and just finally with the writing, there is some element of the damsel in distress with Maggie's character that is a little convenient, again, for Mistral to swoop in and kind of uh, help out, um, and then for Tamir to also resolve the situation. But I think I think they they do, it's not quite as cut and dry there, maybe as, as some other more egregious displays of that writing trope. So anyway. Well, because it's also her, it's her son that they're helping to... So it doesn't come across quite as like, oh, we need to save Maggie. You know, it's kind of helping out her son, whose name I just forgot. But, yeah. um, you know, I was going to say there was one other scene that I found annoying. Um, and it's just this is the way they shoot things in Star Trek. But when T'Pol at the end goes and gets the handbag, just I don't know the what she's wearing to sleep in, the way they have it below her hip bones, so you can see her hip bones, and just the way she's walking. And maybe that's just how Jolene Blaylock, Blaylock walks. But because I know that there was a description for Beverly Crusher that she had the walk of a st- striptease queen, um, 
it just makes yeah yeah that's in like one of the original character descriptions for beverly crusher um but you know so that also just makes you think like did they tell jolie blaylock hey why don't you walk kind of sexy when you go to get your you know that handbag i don't know but it just i mean so that, I, that I don't think we need too. to give them the benefit of the doubt on this i think it is very clearly shot so that Right. So that we are looking at her hips and behind and yeah. She's anyway. given tight clothes throughout the whole show and that mm-hmm. extends to her sleepwear, which is sexy silk pajamas like that's mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it is. Uh, it, and again, I think I genuinely think Tapal is one of the most compelling characters in Enterprise. I think Jolene Blaylock portrays her in an intriguing, cool way throughout the series. And it's one of those, again, elements of Star Trek Enterprise that I think succeeds in spite of itself. Hmm. Well, it's like um, seven of nine in Voyager too. Yeah. Similar kind of situation. Yeah. Ended up with a phenomenal actor in the role. So it like you know even though she was cast for a particular reason, uh, she knocked it out of the park for something other than that reason. Yeah. Yeah. And and I just want to say that I think not. She hit on all the nerves that that were, um, you know, bothersome for me, and I I I kind of probably never pulled out of that nosedive in terms of this episode throughout um the uh, the condescending nature of trip and and um, um jonathan like the captain and uh another senior officer in the captain's dining area that was shocking to me right like these are the, the, these are the people that essentially represent humanity light years um outside and and they're being condescending i know there's that whole vulcan gripe uh, thing, but this this doesn't show it in any better light. And then the continuing insubordination of Mistral. I, I mean, I know what they're trying to do there. They're trying to show it as in, hey, he's he's falling in love with this wonderful, you know, uh, small town culture. But if you if you put your Star Trek mind to it, it makes no sense, right? Like, how how would you do this? Why would you do this, right? What happens to rules and regulations and and all of that but again i mean you can argue you can argue it in the sense that you know it's just a story uh, i don't know it it, it just uh, felt a little odd um okay and, yeah yeah i well i i'm glad uh you're gonna bring a little bit of contrary kind of uh attitude to maybe this episode i don't i don't genuinely know how my co-hosts feel by the way dear listener about this episode <laughs> i have made no bones of the fact that i like it I, I, this is one of my favorite Enterprise episodes, to be honest, um, just because it is, again, one that you don't need, like, with a lot of season three, you need a lot of context, like, here's why all this happens. This one is just a standalone. So let's jump in there. Um, we've been going through these chronologically, so that's that's what I'm going to do to guide us along talking about the story again. And the, the teaser is all set up. We don't actually get to the... The actual Carbon Creek part of Carbon Creek until the first act, uh, in the end, and it, it you know, uh, I think we should. Do we want to discuss the intro again? Is that something we have to discuss every time we go through Enterprise? <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. Bill's You're actually took me seriously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but so um, with the first act essentially, it's it's up to when they they go into the restaurant. The Vulcan ship crashes. Tapal and, and her two crewmates, Mestral and Stron. If you didn't catch the third Vulcan's name, it's Stron. Uh, or we can call him Mo. <laughs> yeah, I believe. Uh, they, they, they crash and they're in desperate situations. They nearly kill Bambi and then they go into uh, a, a bar. 
yeah they and, and they're supposed to be vegetarians as well so a lot of changes for them <laughs> in, in <laughs> thinking about killing bambi um and then you have the standard i i what i found i'm using the word interesting because i'm trying to be nice what i found interesting is there's always the how do i hide the years so one of them has the uh the gap or whatever and and the others are just uh you know they continue through this through the through the episode with the conveniently placed hair um so i i found that i found that funny i like the oh and and Nach, this ends with them entering the restaurant, or is it what happens inside the restaurant as well? We can, we can talk about that. That's an act two. Who cares? I, I, I like the... There was a little bit of intrigue and excitement in that uh, pool game. I like that. I didn't quite know where it was going in the end, so... The, yeah. the stakes are set up well, though, because, I mean, the, the reason I feel like the pool game has that sense of, like, is it is it going to work is because we realize the desperate situation as Vulcan crew is... By the way, that, that scene where they grab the clothes is supposed to be a direct, like, reference to City on the Edge of Forever, where Kirk and Spock grab clothes. And then I think Spock actually wears a very similar winter hat to, to mm-hmm. Mestral in that episode. So I think, I think it comes down pretty clear just what a desperate situation the Vul- Vulcans are in. Did you all find the stakes compelling? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you, you know, it just takes a minute or two. You know, they explain it pretty quickly, but they crash for whatever reason. I, I can't even remember. And <laughs> run out of food and are forced to, you know, go go enter humanity and see if they can figure out something to survive. And the pool game, I thought, was a lot of fun. I mean, it was kind of like, I don't know, kind of pr- pretty tropey, but that's okay. Um, I, I enjoyed it. It was really fortunate that they crashed. I mean, it happens so often, right? Obviously, we know the reason behind the scenes, but all these spaceships always crash in the continental United States, and especially in the fifties. <laughs> in the fifties, imagine crashing anywhere else on the planet. It's not a good place to be. Um, can we can we next to? Uh, I wouldn't mind guy. if they crashed in Mumbai and like they were getting along. They eating some like this food is very spicy, but we love the people. <laughs> And, you know, like, I don't know, man. Yeah, they could have gotten away with it, right? Because of what Mumbai or all of India was in the late 50s, right? But, um, yeah, yeah, let's, I'll just leave it at that. Maybe maybe when uh, when um, Pike and Co. go back in time, they crash land in Russia. <laughs> <laughs> we get to see the Karbonsky Kriegsky version of this. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, okay. Uh, act two, they is is basically now going beyond the stakes to learning how the crew ingratiate themselves with the town. Um, the 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 scenes in the bar, Mestral and Tamir. Uh, it, it, there's a little bit of a time jump there where we basically see them as having picked up some jobs and get haven't got to know Maggie and her son a little bit better. So. Um, I think that was it was a good thing to jump forward in time. I didn't need to see like okay, how did Mo get his job? You know, I didn't need all that. Yeah, and and I, and I feel that um, well, I was I did some math there, right? Like Sputnik was up for three weeks um, after it launched in October, and then it was and then it went dead, and then it was it orbited for a couple of months more, and then it you know deorbited and burned up. Um, and so this, this kid was, which I also found fascinating. Um, people in America were 
you know, generally excited about Sputnik. I haven't heard that that view of it in 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 um, in watching TV or movies or TV series. There's always been a sense of panic around Sputnik launching in America. So that was that was that was nice. Um, yeah, and and I like the way they sort of slotted themselves into into jobs um, and and you know relationships or whatnot. One, you know, they kind of present Mistral as understanding humanity right off the bat and Tamir not understanding. Um, I mean, they do that with Strawn too, but like Mistral and Tamir are bigger parts of the story. But, um, you know, so uh, Tamir sees the laborers and thinks they're prisoners. And then she hears the baseball game and she says, oh, that must be combat. And in both <laughs> cases, Mistral says, oh, no, they. I think those are laborers. And that sounds like entertainment about the baseball game, you know, so they just kind of set it up that that he has an affinity for whatever reason. Like, we don't know what that reason is, but he just has more of an affinity for humans than she does. So we don't see Strawn, you know, in the first act after they leave the ship. And then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they return to the apartment and it's just uh, Tamir and Mistral. And I thought, oh man, did they forget him? (laughs) (laughs) Where's the third guy? (laughs) He's chasing chasing Bambi. They were embarrassed by how how they were embarrassed by how dummy looks when he combed his hair forward. Oh, poor guy. Um, and, and I mean that scene where he where he says like that lady's son uh, refers to him as Mo. That that is the very. I feel like that scene kind of tells us what that second act is about it's about mm-hmm. also exploring what humanity in this time was about because tamir and mestral had that conversation about i mean tamir says like they revel in violence they devote what little technology they have to devising ways of killing each other and mestral says that they have great em- empathy and compassion and i think that's the point at which tamir brings up one of the most important lines in this entire episode only because they believe we're human, if they discovered the truth, do you think they'd be so compassionate? And I think that is the episode, that is the moment when this episode looks behind the curtain for just this mm-hmm. half second and makes you think. And I think my answer is no, they wouldn't. They'd be afraid and they'd be very xenophobic. And they would kill them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they would Gosh. kill them. You know, I mean, it's like when you when, when you're watching shows. I mean, it's just like what what they didn't address by having all of the Vulcans present as white. Somehow gets it slightly gets touched on in that line, um, you know, because if I mean, it, you know, you just think about all of the stories you've heard about uh, people who are black traveling to the United States um before well heck it still happens now but you know uh and just being followed or being uh targeted harassed you you needed the green book because right black folks needed to know where they could go safely Mm -hmm. because sounds like carbon creek is fictional so i don't need to worry about the the feelings of people living in carbon creek they stopped (laughs) existing somewhere in 2002 um (laughs) but towns like carbon creek could be extraordinarily dangerous Mm-hmm. At at the very best, and or at the very least, at the very best, they would be question marks. Like, am mm-hmm. I going to be safe here? So, I I think that's a poignant point that Tamir asks, and there's more logic, haha, to her point of view than Mestral's necessarily, where he's just like gung ho, let's get to know the humans, um, 
than she is. But I, I don't know. What what do you all think? Bill and Rudy, like, do, do, you, do you feel like one of them was more in the right or wrong? Well, look at what happens in the next decade, right? So imagine Mistral staying back. I mean, he apparently stays on for God knows how long for a story. But I, I can imagine... Tamir and Stran on Vulcan or in their next survey exercises going, uh, any, any better yet? Not quite, right? 1968 um, or, or 10 years down the line. So, and that's the part, I mean, I welcome the empathy and, and belief and faith that Mistral places in humanity. But from what he's, unless he's seen things that, that we kind of are conveniently forget, forgetting from the late 50s, um, I I found that a little over the top his his faith in humanity I I felt very I don't know I felt very grounded in the reality or in the version of reality that Stran and Mistral sorry Stran and Tamir were portraying like hey guys we got to get out of here firstly you know we're contaminating the culture and you know stuff may happen that's not really cool so. Okay so <clears throat> let's say Mistral stays actually that's what happened and, you know, he likes to watch TV. So 10 years later, in 1967, he's watching TV. And then <laughs> <laughs> he, he sees this, like, awesome color TV show starring William Shatner. He's like, boom, Gene Roddenberry was a prophet. <laughs> he's like, how did that happen? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Um, well, this this... At the end of this act, he gets into the car with Maggie and they go off to the ball game. And act three begins with them coming back with, I think, one of the sweetest scenes in this in the show um, between him and Maggie in the car. There's quite a bit of nice exposition and there's a little bit of romance. It's adorable. You're such a shipper. I am. You just, you just love all this romance. <laughs> until do. you see, until you see Topal staring at them like children of the damned. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> uh, and then, then Topal, to, Tamir, Tamir, Tamir. I will say not Topal. Tamir oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Says, says to myself, "You were engaging in intimate activity." And this is gonna be my like go-to from now on. Anytime one of my friends has like a new partner, she's gonna be like, "You are engaging in intimate activity." <laughs> <laughs> and then his answer is so like cool and nonchalant like i didn't initiate it <laughs> so, i have nothing to do with it but but did y'all notice the han solo framing uh where, where Ma maggie maggie says like in in the car she's talking about her ex a partner and and she says at the end like i'm usually better at keeping a lid on my emotions it's not always easy and mistral is like i know oh uh you know? I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, I just saw that as Vulcans trying to control their emotions. I can't get to that angle, but yeah. Oh, totally. I mean, it is. That's what he's responding to. But like, I just, I, I, I now catch like in all these romantic scenes, wherever the character says, I know. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 But. Now, I don't know if it was right after this scene or not, but somewhere around this time, I noticed that the pants back then really make men look like they're wearing diapers. <laughs> Maybe they were. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe because Mistral definitely looked like he was wearing a diaper <laughs> under those pants. Long days of filming on Enterprise. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's why they didn't have him have him behind the sheet. We'd see the diaper. <laughs> um, but yeah, what what you think of Maggie as a character? As a character in there, I love her hair. <laughs> this is a classic timeless hairdo, you know. Anyway. 
Anne Cusack yeah. playing Maggie, jo- uh, John and Joan Cusack's sister. Um, ah. And. Yeah, close your eyes and you can totally hear Joan Cusack when she's talking. It's like, oh yeah, I could totally hear how they're siblings. I mean, she's got the standard single mom trying to run a bar, trying to keep things together, send the kid to college. So there's obviously immediate um, empathy there for anybody watching that. Couldn't imagine how that doesn't touch anybody. Um, and, And generally... Those are the kinds of people um, that are the most welcoming to outsiders, right? So I think that fits in well. Um, I, I don't know, and maybe I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb. I really thought, the, especially when they started to get in touch with the, the boy, her, her son, and his, um, his thoughts on going to college with mechanical, I mean, doing mechanical engineering and um, you know, his fascination with astronomy and Sputnik. I don't know. I got a, I got a, a nice, if you guys have seen the movie, October Sky kind of a feeling. And I, I wondered if it would go there. And I guess I set myself up for failure, right? Like I had, I didn't quite, I knew it wasn't, wasn't going to go there, but I was like, oh, they could have done that. So, um, I, I'm not sure if the mom had much to do with, um, the direction in October Sky. I don't remember, but, um, that that's that's where I thought that would go. It's funny you mentioned that because Homer Hickam said he saw this episode and said, I have little doubt that the writers were inspired by my book Rocket Boys and its film adaptation October Sky. Oh wow. Imitation is a sincerest form of flattery, so I'm pleased by the show. Uh so he and Michael Akuda then said, I don't know if it was intentional, but he notices echoes as well. Well, and it was so, like, you don't have, not necessarily speaking to October Sky, but talking about Maggie, it's clear that she would have a son that goes to the library all the time and, and you know, studies as much as he can and wants to go to college. She has that kind of spirit about her. Like, she seems to be more open-minded and welcoming. And so it's like, you know, it's just natural that her son would kind of have that same curiosity because she's, I mean, she gives Tamir a job in the bar slash restaurant and um she's you know entering into intimacy having an intimate relationship (laughs) with mistral you know so so she's not um put off by outsiders yeah okay you guys my beef with this um is okay like the whole like premise all the conflict is coming because jackie you know needs to save up enough money to go to college and he has half a scholarship, right? But they can't mm-hmm. save up like the rest of the money. But how in 1957, how much did it cost to go to college? Like six dollars. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it was not I mean, expensive. You know, I, 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 you guys, I'm, I'm. This is obviously tongue in cheek. I, I don't care. But it, I mean, people worked through college all the time back then, and it was totally possible. And I'm sure you know there were student loans also. <laughs> and they made more money back okay. then pertain like in in comparison to how much it cost for college they made like they could actually work and pay for college like yeah, whereas yeah. now you could work and you still couldn't pay for college like. it's impossible yeah uh, the yeah. university of pennsylvania exactly i was going to say undergraduate like- schools 1958 college of liberal arts the college tuition $1000 uh, $1050 General fee one hundred and fifty dollars. Room and board nine hundred dollars. 
books and equipment, $75, and personal expenses, $395. So we're looking at about three grand ish. For a semester or for a year? I think this looks this is for a year. I don't I don't think this it doesn't say if this is a four-year cost or a um or a one-year cost. Would would uh, um some something STEM like like mechanical engineering be much more or no, this was same. this was all undergraduate uh schools. Oh, There's, so it was all the same, okay. Yeah. yeah, there are other costs listed here for the graduate uh programs, but how much did college cost in 1957? Another link says about 900 bucks. So, so I was gonna I was gonna say the same thing. Is he gonna go to the University of Pennsylvania or like community college? We we didn't quite did, did we did we <laughs> figure that out? We weren't quite sure. But I guess mechanical engineering requires some threshold. So maybe. Well, he uh, I yeah, it's it's it is it is the kind of unintrusive plot device that kind of gets us to why how how we see tamir having kind of a change of heart at the end yeah yeah it's totally fine i'm not it doesn't really bother me but i did thought it, think it was kind of contrived especially like as a millennial knowing how much education costs now it's like really yeah yeah it's like come on you guys like <laughs> look what we have to deal with <laughs> well, let's take, a, let's take a break here real quick we'll come back and discuss the end of this episode do you realize you've just rewritten our history books <laughs> footnote at best footnote footnote this is like finding out that neil armstrong wasn't the first man to walk on the moon but perhaps he wasn't oh perhaps he wasn't mm. <laughs> Hello, this mess Ryle, uh, <laughs> stay on Earth. The rest of his life, presumably. Whoa. That could be like, what, 150, 400 years? Well, possibly longer. Hang on a minute. Hang on a minute. An alien is oh. left on Earth in the 1950s. Lives through, what, 30 presidents? Travels the world. <laughs> And no one notices him? I lost it! <laughs> you suck! <laughs> you suck! Ah. Welcome back to Strange New Takes. We're discussing Carbon Creek from Enterprise, and we're about to move on to the mine accident. Oh no! Uh, Mistral gets a job in the mine, and, uh... There's an accident. Yeah. <laughs> that that kind of describes it, doesn't it? Um <laughs> ne next thing you know, he's 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 in the in the shuttle or whatever in the Vulcan ship and he's called the other two to just help him search. Um and and I th I thought I'm I'm okay with that. I thought that was you know a fifty fifty trade off. Like, hey, I need to find this quickly enough. But if I find it, I won't need them because they may actually stop me from using this because this is the highest level of contamination that I can possibly do, right? And I like how they rationalize how you know we'll just do it and uh, they won't find out. Um, none of those none of those men. I mean, like again, it's it's the right empathetic thing to do but none of those men have anything to, to do with jackie or, or maggie or anything right so it's not like there's a dad in there or a brother or a son or something like that but 
yeah, they uh, just go figure it out. And uh, I, I guess I guess it all works out. I was a little intrigued. Um, I thought there may be a subplot in somebody seeing that in some way, right? Mm. The, the um, what do they call it? The spectral laser or something. Yeah. Um, but that one of the never few times out. that there was techno babble in the episode. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I like that laser though. It was it had this weird, nice dispersion to it. It's very convenient. <laughs> but you know that from a like character and plot standpoint, the point is that that's when um, Tamir and maybe Spran to some extent start to kind of help Mistral or or maybe coming around to his point of view mm-hmm. to some extent. Yeah, because Tamir protests and is angry at him for wanting to do that, but then she's right there with him telling him exactly how far to shoot the beam and all that. Mm-hmm. Do you think she does it because she knows he's going to do it anyway and she wants to reduce the contamination to its minimum, or do you think she's like starting to come around to his point of view? I think, that's I think a it's great the question. latter. Well, I think it's a great question. I think you could argue it with the farmer as well. Right, like the only other alternative she has is to subdue him, and she's kind of given up by then, right? Like, they're gonna have to stay there, so there is long term potential contamination, right? The only other option these guys have is to, you know, uh, euthanize themselves or, or something, right? So, um, I think it's a bit of both, if, if to put it fairly, or at least from my perspective. Yeah, it's it's difficult for me to tell. Because there's definitely the part where she decides to help Maggie and her son by contaminating the the timeline herself. So I think that is that is a evidence of of then her choosing to to to, to intervene, I guess. Um, but. At this point, because because the, the Veltor stuff happens after the mining accident, so it's kind of hard to say, like, is it because she is like, okay, we've already intervened, so should I now intervene even more? Um, and this is, I mean, if you've read any sort of... We've talked about this on this podcast before with uh, In the Pale Moonlight, but this is how decision ethical compromises occur. You make one small compromise in a moment of desperation, which makes the next compromise a little bit easier to make. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I, I view it a a little bit differently. I mean, so this is consistent with <clears throat> the Vulcan trope, right? There, every every time you have a Vulcan in Star Trek, right? This is like what happens, basically. You know, they're supposed to be like totally emotionless and logical, but they're super emotional, actional. You know, they're like really irritable. Um, they're like they have social anxiety. Like they hate like talking to people. They're defensive. Um, <laughs> so actually, they're like pretty emotional. Um, but the, you know, the, the, the idea is that they're supposed to have this kind of super rational philosophy, but then anytime something happens, uh, it's actually like the, the Vulcan showing emotion or anything, anytime something of importance happens. So here it's, you know, we're kind of getting, getting a peek under that hard exterior and it's like, Oh, you know, Tamir is actually like a softy on the inside, and really is empathic and and actually feels kind of a connection with humanity, but can't has to kind of act like she she doesn't. <clears throat> but I think that's what they're trying to show us is that oh maybe she's not so 
so stiff, you know, maybe she really does like feel some kind of an emotional connection. Yeah. I think uh, the other, the other piece of that is, is kind of, there's always, I feel like in these Star Trek time travel episodes, there's that, that, that sense of like, Ooh, and they intervened a little bit, but you wouldn't know it as a human being. Like, you know, I feel like there's, there's one of those like forest gumpy, like, well, they were there kind of situations. And with this, with the Velcro thing, the funny thing is, so Velcro was invented by a person, a real person, because, you know, it didn't just come out of the ground. <laughs> but Velcro was invented by a person named Georges de Mestral. And that's where the character of Mestral got his name. And But the problem is that the Velcro patent was granted in 1955, two years before Sputnik. So it's, uh, I, I do like the nice kind of sense of, Okay, the kind of in-jokey nature of that trivia, though. It's kind of neat. Yeah, yeah. And I think, was it for NASA? I think it was. I think it was. Like I've a heard that, too. Him. I've heard that it, it was used in the space program first, but I'm, I will have to probably verify it. Yeah, because you really need it in space, right? Like on your spacesuit and stuff, right? How else? You can't have buttons. So well, Swiss electrical engineer Georges de Mistral invented his... First Dutch fastener, when in 1951 he went for a walk in the Alps and wondered why burdock seeds clung to his woolen socks and coat and also his dog Milka. So he, he, that's that's how his mind went forward with that. Um, and nothing about NASA here, but this is looks like it's for the for the company Velcro, not the concept of Velcro. Yeah, and, and now if I think about it, right, general pilots, especially in the military, having your maps, um, you know, um, stuck to your thigh and, and other things like glass and all of that. So maybe not not just for NASA, but hey, I thought I thought she was going to go and uh, this is really a bad joke, so I'm, I'm warning everybody, but I thought it was going to be vulcanized rubber. <laughs> 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 uh, I guess not. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, that was another Vulcan who also came back before and was also right. like in the. He's in the background of a few shots in Carbon Creek. We don't notice him though. The guy with the cap or hat or whatever. Right. Um, well, okay. Then, then comes the rescue. Mestral decides to stay, and everyone's like, "Stay! You can't stay!" And then they cover for him, uh, and and he sticks around. I guess the question there is, we've talked about this a little bit, but I mean, Mestral sticking, do you think he told Maggie finally why he was wearing a hat all the time? Because like, he'd have to wear a hat like at home in the shower, like, you know, he couldn't, otherwise he couldn't. And, and... He's like a never nude, but with his hat. <laughs> <laughs> he wears jean cutoffs on his head. <laughs> uh by the way, Mestral played by J. Paul Bamer, who's also played many other characters in Star Trek, three of whom, I'm not kidding, three of the other characters he's played in Star Trek were Nazi officers in Voyager and Enterprise. So that seems like his like typecast kind of situation. He played the he played the 31st century Borg drone in um, Voyager's episode Drone as well. So um so yeah, any feelings around. about the, the, the kind of end of the Carbon Creek story? About how it ends. I, well, they uh, kind of leave it open that he doesn't necessarily just stay in Carbon Creek. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think Maggie ever had to discover that he 
has pointed ears because I think maybe he left and went somewhere else. Ooh, he doesn't stay with Maggie. He abandons her. Yeah, and I found that, I mean, again, nothing, I'm not biased is in for or against her, but I found that interesting because through the episode, while he d- denies it, you kind of feel that that's where he's he's kind of settling down, right? Small town, uh, found somebody he really likes, who likes him, and then he's like, nope, I'm uh, I'm going to head to the big city uh, in a short while, and then I don't know. So um, I, I guess that explains... Maybe he moves moves around um, a lot, especially if he's going to be living for like 100, 150 plus years. People are going to notice, right? Um, so it, it kind of draws me to another another movie, which if you guys have not seen, I don't want to spoil it for you all, but do, do watch it. It's a nice movie. It's called Man from Earth. Um, it has Dr. Phlox in it. I, I don't know the actor's name, but... John Billingsley. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating movie. I liked it a lot. Um, so just a plug. What's it about? It's about um, a professor who is is leaving for a new job, and it, he's just inviting people over his fellow professors um, um, for, like, a farewell. Or actually, they just show up because he's just going to leave. And they they show up and they have a nice evening conversation and it's kind of mind blowing that conversation. So, um, again, no spoilers, but yeah, okay, all right, I'll take a look at that. Um, so that I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, sorry, just to go back. Have you your seen quest- it? By the no, way. no. Okay, cool. So, Notch, just to go back to your question, the thing that bugged me about the ending, and this is one of the things that that makes the episode not really make sense, like, if that was true, if Mistral stayed behind and they basically faked Mm -hmm. his death, T'Pol wouldn't know that to tell the story to Archer and Tripp, right? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, she would think that he had died in the crash initially, right? Right. Right. Unless her grandmother somehow, or great-grandmother somehow passed the story down. It was in the purse. Saying like, ooh, we, you know, we faked his death or something. Yeah, yeah, okay. Potentially, yeah. <laughs> well, and, I mean, she says that it's documented in the Vulcan Science Director that the Vulcans had crashed there. But you're right that she shouldn't have known the part about Mistral unless she found, I don't know, maybe maybe her grandmother like sat her down on her lap and like, like basically, she was trying to yeah, yeah. set Trip and, and and the captain straight, who were just being a, a, a couple of asses, right, at the, <laughs> the table. Yeah, but then so there's the handbag, <laughs> right? But maybe, maybe, maybe Tapal is just like, "Ooh, this like little trinket I just bought in Sausalito." <laughs> <laughs> when I actually went to Carbon Creek, bought it from there, <laughs> right? Um. Yeah, I I don't know. I it's um it's okay. Now is the time that we can discuss whether we believe it, right? Like a little bit more. We discussed it a little bit earlier as well. But like at the end, I mean the end of the episode after the Carbon Creek story is dedicated to that. And Archer and Trip don't know what's happening. We get that final scene with the handbag that we've talked about. So it's kind of an open question. So where did y'all land? At the end, in your opinion, if you have to pick a side, did it happen or did it not happen? It happened. 
Mistral's the still alive. <laughs> <laughs> He's out there somewhere right now. Okay. All right. Um, I mean, you always got to go with it happened, right? It's 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 too painful to go with. No, she was just messing with them. Well, you know what? You know what was interesting when I watched this episode. Um, you know, we can't help but bring our current context to what we're watching, and it just jumped out at me when Trip was like, "Wait, so are you telling me that you realize that this changes everything about?" how we understand our history, you know, like that's like finding out that Neil Armstrong wasn't the first person on the moon. Oh, well, what if he wasn't, you know, like, yeah. so to Paul's kind of playing with him, but it makes me think of like the resistance that we're hearing from people who don't want actual history to be taught. Like they just want the version of history that they've grown up knowing, um, you know, the version that just makes the United States the hero all the time that never did anything wrong and, and twists the understanding of the civil war to be something that like, Oh, well the North just wanted the South to fail and not be able to run their plantations. And, you know, like, like, okay, that's one way to describe it, but you know, but it just, it just kind of got me thinking about just our resistance to, to hearing a story that doesn't quite jive with what our understanding of our history is, but just because of that, that doesn't mean that we should reject it outright, you know? On that note, um, from here in Austin, Texas, happy Juneteenth. Yes. Yep. To all of us. The oldest um, occasion, uh, mark, historic marker, I don't know exactly how I would describe it, that commemorates slavery being abolished in the United States, now established as a federal uh, national holiday. Um, and recognition. So take a moment to read about the history of Juneteenth if you haven't already, dear listener, because um, you certainly won't hear about it from this episode uh, <laughs> of Star Trek, uh, um, which is very conveniently avoids that very difficult topic of race, as we mentioned before. Um, it's because it, there were, this wasn't an episode that had Captain Cisco <laughs> as part of right. it. He would have made sure they talked about it. <laughs> yeah, Maggie and Jack would have been slightly less sympathetic characters if mm-hmm. they had been virulently racist. Uh, let's put it that way on screen. Yeah. So, But, I mean, they do have, whether it's meant to be that way or not, they do include some unsavory elements, like the, the lecherous dude who wants a minute with Tamir as part of, as part of a wager. Um, and so, so there, there are some elements at least that peek through, um, but not enough, but anyway. that's consistent with the notion of Star Trek though. Like Star Trek has always been a little, well, uh, they, Star Trek wants to pretend as though race isn't an issue. Like that's not something that, um, you know, we're beyond that in Star Trek terms, you know, or Star Trek times. And that's, I mean, the original series really acted that way and and they cast it that way i too too you know like i remember there's an episode of the original series where the i don't know if it's an admiral or um and i'm pretty sure he's of indian descent um i can't remember which episode it's in i just remember there's like some sort of trial and he's sitting in a chair and the computer talks to him anyway but um but i remember thinking you know that's that's some that's some bold casting for the 60s you know like they weren't just uh, casting only white people in the higher up echelons of Starfleet, but um, but it's always really been pretty bad on um, women. <laughs> like it's just, yeah. you yeah. know. 
even I mean, when they try by having a first officer in the in the pilot who's a woman it's still it still falls short like they just can't quite get it right with women well and and i mean we have to also acknowledge that times arrow has the same version of not mm-hmm. dealing with racism in the past as right well. that's so, true well um this episode was filmed in uh if, if it looked a lot like california to you congratulations you guessed right it was filmed in crestline california near san bernardino that's why there wasn't any snow in winter <laughs> pens- in, during the pennsylvania winter um and there are some calculations of where it would be there is no carbon creek pennsylvania there is carbon county pennsylvania though so there is some of that um, another interesting piece of trivia is that all the scenes in the captain's mess were filmed in two versions. There's one where they, which you see on screen, and then there's another one where everyone was played as inebriated. Really? <laughs> you know, yeah. Can we see those? Like, are those on the They're DVD in a or the reel. Blu-ray? They are really? in a nice. blooper reel. Oh yep. wow! Well, oh, I gotta see that. that. Uh, yeah. So I've got those Blu-rays, so I'm checking them out. <laughs> Uh, and this episode is also one where the music playing in the bar as Tapal, uh, Tamir and Mestral enter changed on the Blu-ray version because because of rights issues. So, anyway, well, um, at this point, it's time for strange new ratings. Let's stick our necks out and give Carbon Creek a rating. Who wants to go first? Mm. I'll go first. I'll go first. I never go first on Saint Jude rating, so I'll I'll do it. Um, this is an episode which, I, as I mentioned before, I watched twice in the last three months already. So it's 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 definitely rewatchable for me. It has its flaws, but I think it is able to. I think as long as you give it that kind of permission to be fluffy and not like a hard realistic version of history, and if you are willing to look past the egregious sexism of a couple of the places in it, uh, I think it it can do well but it does have those errors so i'm gonna i'm gonna give it a seven on ten i think it, it is it hits my rewatchability threshold but i do have to ding it for its problems uh i think if that scene without the bed sheet wasn't there it would be an eight on ten for me yeah i was gonna give it a 3.5 out of five similar reasons like i i always i always enjoyed this episode i thought it was kind of clever and fun and and it's nice to have those one-off star trek episodes that you can just sit down and watch and not have to be invested in anything else but oh that sheet scene is pretty terrible same seven out of ten eight without the sheet Oh man, conformity. Jeez. We had that. He last wanted week. he wanted to see her change without the sheet there in front of her. I'm just teasing. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. I just started thinking what that could mean. I, I just wanted Mestral back there with, you know. <laughs> okay. With his diaper. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> oh man. He's changing his diaper behind the sheet. <laughs> Um, and I'm glad oh I'm glad we're at the end of the podcast. <laughs> well, no, you have my reading remaining. So uh, we had conformity last week as well until I, I voted. So I'm going to go against the grain and give it um, a six on ten. Um, yeah, I couldn't come up with an interesting scale this time, but a six on ten for, for all the reasons we didn't like it. And um, yeah, I, I quite I couldn't quite sink into the warm and fuzziness and detached nature of the episode. I, I felt as uh, uh, frustrated as, as good old Strand did. 
was happy to leave at the <laughs> okay. end of it. Um, yeah. All right. Well, good. Uh, we have not done the thing where we discuss which episode we're going to talk about next. So uh, after a week off of doing that live on air, we're going to do that right now. Uh, so <laughs> Mix it up. Discuss- uh, I've got I've got the spreadsheet up of of different episodes, so I'm kind of curious. Do you all have one that you all would like to talk about? Uh, I would say we've got things like yesterday's Enterprise. We've got um, magic to make the sanest mind sanest man go go mad. Mad from Discovery. We've got all good things from TNG. Uh, Bill, is there a TNG episode you want to pick? Times Square, cause and effect. Oh, cause and effect, dude. Do you okay. guys know that one? Yeah. It's a classic. I remember yeah. it. <clears throat> All right. We're going to do cause and effect next week. Uh, so from TNG's a dear listener, go and watch cause and effect before you listen to our uh, next episode. And, and dear co-hosts, we are, we're certain that this episode has actual time travel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Near and dear co-hosts. Okay. All right. Well, with that... Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Rudy. I always appreciate the chance to come and talk Star Trek with you every single week. It is bar none one of my favorite moments. Thanks, uh, Notch. Thanks, Notch. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Notch. I, I do enjoy this every week. And thank you, dear listener, for joining us. Thank you, Max, Dinah, and Adam, wherever y'all are, whatever y'all are doing. All of you, I hope y'all are having a great time. Thanks, Jishnu Guha, for recording our theme music. And special thanks this week, first of all, to Jack's College for being such hard asses about the financial aid and the cost of attendance. Without that, there would be no tension in this episode. So thanks for existing. And also thanks to that mining company that had the coal mine for having such lax security standards and getting a bunch of miners stranded. Because again, that allowed these two things, you know, these two horrible entities allowed our characters to to, to to drive the narrative forward so special <laughs> thanks to you for being horrible <laughs> All right. but with that uh, we'll come back to you next week uh, with cause and effect see you in seven days everyone bye bye, bye. bye.